1 Corinthians 13. I'd like to uh, welcome you this morning and extend the invitation to this evening where we will have our monthly Q&A night. Uh, what I'll tell you about the question is, uh, it's actually, it's the second occasion, I think, in which I've got two questions about the same passage. Uh, it's a, a passage from the story of Moses, and it's one, I guarantee you, you have never heard a sermon about before, and you might not even be aware that it exists. It's one of the strangest scenes in the book of Exodus. Come back tonight, we'll talk about that. First Corinthians 13 and verse 1. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all that I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Have you ever been to a, a wedding where this chapter was read? I have. I was once asked to read it at a wedding. And it's easy to see why. It's, it's a beautiful, poetic passage. It's all about love, which is an important thing in marriage. But I do have this concern about, about passages of Scripture that are often recited at public events. The verses we inscribe on cross stitches and on pillows and things. The, the verses we stamp on letter jackets and all of that. My concern is that, that what is in reality a deep and powerful spiritual truth is sort of used for mere sentiment. And it's sort of made to, made to feel good, and we feel good because it's sort of like the language, but we don't think as deeply as we should about what it means. And I want to suggest that there's a lot more going on in this chapter than, not, than sort of nice-sounding sentiments about love. So um, a while back I, I preached a sermon on Psalm 23, the most famous psalm, often sentimentalized, I'm afraid, and I called that sermon, Rescuing Psalm 23 from the Cross Stitch. I want to bring that out of the cross stitch, this sort of nice, nice soft-lit version of it, and uh, confront its reality. And I want to do the same thing with 1 Corinthians 13 this morning. I want to rescue 1 Corinthians 13 from the cross stitch. So let's begin by making a few opening observations here about this chapter that helps us take it more seriously. The, fir the first observation I want to make is this. 1 Corinthians 13 has a context. Um, this chapter is smack dab in the middle of a bigger argument Paul is making across chapters 12 through 14. And it's been all about spiritual gifts. There is division in the church. There is chaos in worship that is caused by rivalries between those with different spiritual gifts. If you read chapter 12, there's this, there's this vision of what a church is that functions well. And he says it's like a healthy body, which has many diverse members, but all the diverse members work together for the common good. Chapter 13 describes the attitude that must undergird the unity of the body of Christ, and that is love. And that brings us to the second observation I want to make about this chapter is that 1 Corinthians 13 was written to a church. I think there are some good points to be made about love in general and about love and marriage, but the first and primary application Paul envisions here is to the church. This is a chapter written to the church. And then there's this. 1 Corinthians 13, I think, is meant to be read as a rebuke. The reason Paul must describe in such detail what love is and why it's so essential is because this church knows nothing of it. When Paul says things like, love does not envy or boast, it is not arrogant or rude here in a few verses, he is describing their arrogance and rudeness. He is describing the sorts of attitudes present in Corinth. Just read the rest of the letter. This is meant to be a rebuke, correction. And then finally, it's meant to be a challenge. 
read seriously, you realize Paul does not think love means that we have warm, fuzzy feelings towards someone. To live with love is to learn to be long-suffering with people who might make us suffer. It means to be patient with those we want to lose patience with. It means to avoid being rude and irritable to people who might be rude and irritable to us. And so I think if we get beyond the cross-stitch of these verses, when we actually try to do what these verses say, you realize love is hard work and that there are deep challenges happening here. So, now that I've ruined all future weddings for you, let's read on and let's think in more detail about what this passage is about. First of all, what Paul tells us is, that it is about the futility of spirituality without love. That's what verses 1 through 3 describe, the futility of spirituality without love. So in verses 1 through 3, each verse unfolds the same way. Paul describes some spiritual achievement, something that is impressive. But then he says, without love, that achievement is worthless. And that the person who has that achievement, but without the love behind it, that person amounts to nothing, and their efforts amount to nothing. And so a church full of amazing tongue speakers and prophets and ascetics and people who give all these sacrifices... It's still a crummy church if it doesn't have love. And so verse 1, it begins with tongues. If I speak with tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or clanging cymbal. If you keep reading in chapter 14, those with the gift of tongues seem to be the main source of conflict in Corinth. They were awfully impressed with their ability to miraculously speak in other languages. They viewed this as the height of spirituality. Uh, now, I'm interested in this, in this line in verse 1, the tongues of angels. You can speak in the tongues of angels, which has, caught people, which has caused people to ask, do angels have their own language? And were the Corinthians able to speak it? And the answer is, I have no idea. I don't know what language angels speak to each other with or speak to God with. I know when angels speak to people on earth, they speak the people's language, but I don't know beyond that. Uh, I, I read tongues of angels as sort of a, a hyperbole to emphasize the preeminence of love. That's the point. And so what he's saying is something like this. Even if I could speak every language in the world, including the heavenly language of angels, but have not love, I'm just a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. It doesn't mean anything. I don't care what language you can speak. And and then this image of a noisy gong or or clanging cymbal is something taken from pagan worship. Pagan worship often included this sort of ecstatic banging of cymbals to rouse the gods, these elaborate ceremonies where they literally rang gongs and cymbals and things. And so what he's saying is without love, all the tongue speaking in the world means about as much as the frenzied worship of the pagans toward gods that don't exist. It means as much as their worship does. That is nothing. Verse 2, he speaks of prophecy. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge... And if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. Prophecy is about the ability to speak a word from God. Understanding all mysteries and all knowledge means having sort of inside information about the plans of God. All faith so as to remove mountains, that's probably a reference to these words of Jesus. Remember when Jesus said this, If you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, Move here to there and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. Matthew 17 and verse 20. So here we have three things, prophecy, and then, and then knowledge, and then faith. Imagine a person with, with the gift of prophecy to the nth degree. They always have a word from God. They always know the exact right thing to say. And this person knows all the deep mysteries of God, all the questions that we have, they actually have the answers for. 
And they have this faith that enables them to do amazing things. Sort of, it's a Christian superhero is the image of verse 2, is the picture being painted. And yet imagine this person has all these gifts but doesn't have love as the mover of these gifts. These gifts only make him proud and arrogant. He thinks he's God's gift to the world. He's more interested in impressing you with him than he is impressing you with God. What does a guy like that amount to? Nothing. Verse 3. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. So here is a guy who is willing to sacrifice all his possessions and even even his own life. He's describing a martyr here. He's willing to give his life over to a cause bigger than him. What's more admirable than that? Without properly aligned love, what does it amount to? It amounts to nothing. I once read a book about someone. Um, this someone came from a wealthy family. They were born into uh, to great luxury and materialism. But even from an early age, this person repudiated the superficiality and the materialism of that life. They became deeply religious. They choose to li- chose to live in an ascetic life away from the luxuries they grew up with. Uh, they they uh, served a cause that was bigger than them. This person possessed the, the traits of self-control and self-sacrifice. Do you know the book I'm describing, what it was about, who it was about? It was about Osama bin Laden. My point is, without properly aligned love, otherwise admirable traits and achievements like self-control and self-sacrifice become corrupt and destructive and evil. Paul's point is this. Spiritual gifts and personal achievements are never ends in themselves. They're not absolute goods. So we put the question this way. Is the ability to speak in tongues good or bad? The answer is, well, it kind of depends. If you use them to preach the gospel to people, well, I think that's good. If you use them to boost your own ego and show off, they're bad. We could do this with any talent or any aptitude in the world. Okay, courage. Is courage good or bad? And We're all eager to say it's good because the opposite of it is certainly not good. But the real answer is, is courage good or bad? The real answer is it it depends. There were courageous Nazi soldiers. Courage is only truly good when it's pointed in the right direction. Is talent as a public speaker good or bad? Well, if you're preaching the gospel, I think it's good. But by all accounts, Benito Mussolini was a talented public speaker. Is loyalty good or bad? Well, it depends who you're loyal to. See, love must be the north star of everything. Love pointed in the right direction. You know what the two great commandments of the law are, according to Jesus? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Get those squared away, and all the other spiritual, spiritual traits fall in line. Mess those up, and every other achievement you have will become, will become perverse. Love is what points all our other efforts in the right direction. Without it, everything becomes nothing. And even worse than nothing, it becomes corrupt and destructive. And so love ensures that tongues spread the gospel, not division. Love ensures prophecy and knowledge boost God's glory and not the ego of the one with the gift. Love ensures that courage and loyalty and self-discipline are used for good ends and not evil ends. Spirituality without love is absolutely futile. It's, it's nothing, and sometimes it's even worse 
than nothing. And so, with that, understanding the importance of love and how it sets the course for everything else in our lives, we need to understand more deeply what love is and what love does. So beginning in verse 4, Paul personifies love. He basically says, if love were a person, here's what that person would be like. He strings together a list of things love is and things love is not. Things love does do and things love does not do. And so it begins in verse 4 when he says love is patient and kind. And I think these first two characteristics of love are already chipping away at some of our culture's ideas of love. We think love is what happens when a pretty girl bats her eyelashes at you, right? Love is being infatuated with someone. Love is feeling a certain way. That's not love, to be clear. That's lust. That's the Bible word for what that is. Real love embodies virtues like patience and kindness. Continuing in verse 4, love does not envy or boast. I think envy and boasting are two sides of one coin. They, they, they both depend on competition and comparison. And so when I compare myself to you and I feel like I've won, I am boastful. And if I compare myself to you and I feel like I've lost, I might be envious of you. When I have something that you don't, I might boast about it. And when you have something that I don't, I might be envious about it. Now, the word he uses for envy here is the same word he applies to the Corinthians back in chapter 3. He said this back in chapter 3 and verse 3, For while there is jealousy or envy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh? There is envy in Corinth. And so when he says love does not envy, it's a jab at Corinth, which is full of envy. Boasting's a problem too. Back in chapter 5 and verse 6, he said this simply, Your boasting is not good. Love teaches us, We're all a part of the one body of Christ. And different body parts are not in competition with each other. They value the unique contributions each makes because the one goal of the body is not to glorify one part of the body over the others, but for the good of the whole body. That's what love reminds us of. The end of verse 4, love is not arrogant. The most literal translation would be love is not puffed up, which is a good image. We, we have phrases that capture that, that picture pretty well. We say things like this. He is full of himself. Love does not obsess how smart and right I am about everything. Love considers the good of others and the fallibility of myself. Verse 5. Love is not rude. New American Standard, love does not act unbecomingly. New King James, love does not dishonor others. I like to link uh, arrogance and rudeness together. I think they sort of go hand in hand. An arrogant person is often a rude person, and a rude person is usually an arrogant person. So if I have an inflated sense of my own importance and my own intelligence, if I'm superior to others, I think, if I'm the greatest asset this church has, then what does that mean about your thoughts? What does that mean about your contributions? What does that mean about your feelings? Well, they're automatically less important than mine. And so if I'm always right, if I'm arrogant like that, and you're always wrong, how much value am I going to place on you? How much, how much, uh, how much lenience am I going to give to you? How much love am I going to have for you? Arrogant people are usually rude. Rude people are usually arrogant, and neither of them love well. Continuing in verse 5, love does not insist on its own way. Other versions say love does not seek its own This is exactly what Paul has been talking about. Uh, Earlier in the book, he'd been talking about this issue of eating meat that had been sacrificed to idols. 
and people who are bickering over this and sort of uh, condescending others about their view. He said this back in chapter 10 and verse 24. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. He also points to his own example of seeking the good of others instead of his own good. And so he said this in 1033. I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage or not seeking my own good, but that of many that they may be saved. Love seeks the good of others ahead of the good of self. End of verse 5. Love is not irritable or resentful. Both of these have to do with anger. Uh, Irritable is a quick temper. Uh, It's the person who's ready to bite off your head at the slightest provocation. Resentful is a more slow-burning sort of thing. It's anger that's held on to for a long period of time. It's the anger that keeps account of every wrong thing ever done to them so you can break break out that ledger next time you need to win a battle. You know, remember that time you did that. Remember that time you said that. Paul says what love does is throw out the ledger, the resentment ledger. Love doesn't carry around the baggage of every bad thing you ever did to me after I've forgiven you. Verse 6. Verse 6, he says, It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love changes what brings us joy. It aligns our joy with God's, with what brings him joy. Instead of having joy whenever I feel like I'm better than you, instead of feeling joy when I can condescend to you and boast toward you, I begin to derive joy from what God does. And so I made my list of what brings God joy just from sort of skimming through the first part of 1 Corinthians. Here's the sorts of things that bring God joy. Preaching that glorifies God, not the preacher. That brings God joy. Sinners who are brought to repentance. That brings God joy. Brethren who dwell together in unity and don't sue each other, that brings God joy. Brethren who don't browbeat those who have less knowledge than them but have patience with one another, that brings God joy. People who understand true love align their love with God's loves. And then in verse 7, Paul uses four strong verbs that characterize the positive actions of love. And so first, love bears all things. Bear is is a good word. It's a work word. It means to carry something heavy on your back. Paul has already demonstrated this, by the way. Back in chapter 9, he talks to them about his right as a preacher of the gospel to receive monetary support for his preaching. And yet he says, because receiving support from you, Corinth, would have negative consequences for you and your attitude, I renounce that right when it comes to you. And listen to what he says back in chapter 9 and verse 12. We have not made use of this right, but rather we endure. That's the same word he uses here. We bear, we bear anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Love bears all things. Love says, whatever I have to endure or suffer, if it's for your benefit, I'm up for it. Love values your good over my comfort. In Paul's case, it valued their attitude, their, their, their approach toward preachers, valued that over his own monetary support. Continuing in verse 7, love believes all things, and then love hopes all things. These are two more things love does. It believes all things and hopes all things. Now, Paul does not mean love makes us gullible. Someone says the sky is green. Someone says Antarctica is hot. And we say, oh, really? Okay. Love believes all things, so I believe that. That's not it. The idea is there's no limit to the faith and hope the one with love has. The one who loves has an open heart that never limits the possibilities with God. There are vast storehouses of faith and hope to draw on. 
And then the end of verse 7, love endures all things. Which is, I think, a book into verse 4, where he said love is patient in the beginning of this section. Love is patient in verse 4, and love endures all things at the end of verse 7. Love doesn't give up. It's not exhausted or spent. And so we live in a difficult and fallen and hostile world, but the one with love will not give up on God or give up on God's people. They keep going with faith and hope. I think a good diagnostic tool here, when we take up the challenge of this chapter, a good diagnostic tool is to take out the word love in these verses and insert your own name where you see the word love. So, for example, love is patient and kind. Okay. Is Drew patient and kind? That's the challenge. Love is not irritable or rude. Is Drew irritable or rude? Do it with your own name. There's an enormous challenge here. The character of love is a high bar. But then there's this, verse 8. We have the eternality of love. Beginning on verse 8, there is a giant contrast between the permanence of love and the temporariness of spiritual gifts. Verse 8. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. So he says love is preeminent over any spiritual gift you can name because love never ends. That's different from the spiritual gifts because he says they will end. There's coming a day... He says there will no longer be any prophets or any tongue speakers. Now, in saying that, he's not denigrating the spiritual gifts. He's not saying because they're worthless. In fact, in chapter 14, he will say, earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially prophecy. Spiritual gifts were important. God empowered people to use them for a reason, but the spiritual gifts are not permanent and they're not ultimate. They have their place, but love is absolutely fundamental to God's purposes. It's a forever thing, unlike the spiritual gifts. Verses 9 and 10. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. So we have this contrast between part and whole, partial and complete. And as important as knowledge and prophecy are, what he says is they are ultimately only partial. They are only partial glimpses of God and his plans. The spiritual gifts serve an important purpose, but there's coming a day when that purpose will be obsolete. The spiritual gifts were means to an end, not ends in themselves. They're baby steps toward a bigger picture. And his point is this. If you wrap your identity totally in the spiritual gifts, if that's what your Christianity is, if it's the spiritual gifts you have, you've missed the point. Because you know what Paul is saying to them? There will be future generations who will be just as Christian as you are, but without the spiritual gift. If the spiritual gifts are temporary, and if love is permanent and love is eternal... That's telling you something about the superiority of love. That's actually what this thing is about and not the gifts. In verses 11 and 12, he uses a couple of analogies of this logic of part and whole. These are examples of things that are partial now but are complete later. And our focus in these things is not the partial but the, but the later completeness. That the partial is pointing us toward a greater end. So this is verse 11. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. But when I became a man, I gave up childish ways. So children are an example of sort of this partial, this sort of a partial uh, possession of something. So children just catch on to the world in little bits and pieces. 
take their vocabulary. The vocabulary just sort of builds up little by little. So, for example, when my, when my kids first learned to talk, they all said this. Whenever you would reach to uh, pick them up, they wanted you to pick them up, they would say, Daddy, hold you. Daddy, hold you. They didn't say hold me, they said hold you, because that's what they heard. I would say, you want me to hold you? And they say, yes, hold you. Their reasoning, their thought process is not all there. It matures incrementally. Their comprehension is very childish. But then they learn and they grow. Hold me is correct. What Paul is getting at is that Corinth seems to still be in the childhood stage of development. Their spiritual gifts are not the pinnacle of Christianity. Their spiritual gifts are are at the childhood stage of it. Paul is definitely ruffling feathers here of these Christians who viewed themselves with such pride and arrogance. Back in chapter 3, he addressed them as infants. He called them infants who were not ready for solid food. And so just as adults put away their childish ways, God is going to put away the spiritual gifts you are building so much of your identity on, he says. You're in the partial stage. You're still saying, Daddy holds you. You understand that? Verse 12. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So the illustration here has gone from childhood to a mirror. Uh, I'm told mirror making was a pretty big industry in Corinth, uh, but mirror technology in that day was much more rudimentary. Um, our mirrors are engineered to have very clear images, but their, their uh, mirrors were literally just highly polished metal. It would show you your reflection, but not, not clearly. In Paul's language, dimly. You would see a dim reflection. You don't get every detail in a first century mirror. And his point in verse 12 is right now you're in a mirror stage. Right now you're not all seeing. You're not all knowing. Your view of things, Corinth, is hazy. It's like looking in the mirror. But he says you should know there's a coming a day when your knowledge of God will not be hazy. And you'll see him as he really is. You will see and know God as fully as he sees and knows us. So finally, verse 13. So now, faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. I think this verse is pretty astounding. Not only is love more permanent than spiritual gifts like prophecy and tongues, it's even more permanent than cardinal spiritual virtues like faith and hope. Just as there's a time when spiritual gifts will be obsolete, there's coming a day when faith and hope will be obsolete. So let's think about this. Hebrews 11.1, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Faith is about seeing things that you cannot see. You see them by faith, not with your eyes. Faith is only necessary when you can't see something. But when faith turns to sight... When the truth we believe by faith, we now see with our own eyes, faith isn't needed anymore. Faith isn't needed when you can see it. Hope is the future expectation that God will fulfill his promises. But what's hope for when the promises are not confidently expected in the future? What's hope for when the promises are possessed fully and there's no more future about it? You have everything God ever said you were going to have. There's no need for hope anymore. Paul is speaking to a church obsessed with their possession of spiritual gifts. It had provoked rivalry and division in the church. They seem to imagine they're at the center of Christianity. He says in these verses, you fail to see. These spiritual gifts are a means to an end. And you've forgotten what the end is. 
They serve a purpose, but when that purpose is met, they'll cease. What will never cease is love. That is what must be pursued above all else. That's the end. Love is so permanent and eternal, it will outlast even foundationally important virtues like faith and hope. Even those will be obsolete one day. But love will never be obsolete. Every day in heaven will be characterized by love, love of God and love of God's people. So I think 1 Corinthians 13 does have something to say about marriage. Make no mistake. But the first application of Paul's words are to the church. How do my actions and attitudes express or fail to express love for my brethren in this church? All our efforts, all our achievements don't mean much. And they might even do more harm than good if they're not done in love. There is in 4 through 7 a demanding list of what a person who embodies love will do. Love is not a fluffy, saccharine, sweet sentimentality. It goes deeper than a cross-stitch. It's hard work, and it's character development. It's being patient with frustrating people. It's telling tough truths to one another. It's purging ourselves of pride and envy. It's humbling ourselves to accept being wrong without retribution. It's hard work. But it is so important, it will literally outlast faith and hope as spiritual virtues. I think ultimately this chapter is not meant, to, not meant to make us feel good. It's meant to challenge us. It's meant to call us to repentance. And it's recorded in Scripture so it will challenge all Christians from here until Jesus comes back. And so if there's anyone here that wants to meet the challenge of love by repenting of your sins, by repenting of your selfishness, your arrogance, your impatience, whatever it is, we offer the invitation now as we stand and sing. Must be.